to the episode. Today we are discussing the readings for the third Sunday of Advent, or Gaudete Sunday, which comes from the Latin rejoice. Remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, comment, share, subscribe, do all the things to help us, again, appease the algorithm gods, get in there and, and fight them. Also, if you have any questions, you can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com, and we will answer them on the episode. But before we begin, the sacred and the profane. So we have some pretty big saints this week. I guess yeah. this last week, by the time the episode comes out, these will have already happened. But on, was it Monday, Tuesday, we had Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, on Tuesday. That was Tuesday. And then Wednesday, we had St. Lucy, a good early, early Christian martyr. And on Thursday, we had St. John the Cross. All very fitting in this season of Advent, I think. Why is uh, that? Well, I think, well, let's go, let's go through them. <laughs> <laughs> Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, she appears as a pregnant woman. Uh, and that's, I believe, a, a symbol of uh, salvation that she's bringing to Mexico. What's really fascinating about Our Lady of Guadalupe is that uh, she appeared in the 1500s, 1531, I believe is the exact date. Um, and at the same time she appeared, Europe was undergoing perhaps the darkest time in church history. Uh, that was when the Protestant Reformation had already begun. Right. Um, and the church was losing members by the thousands. And when it seemed like the church was uh, hopeless in this hopeless situation, Our Lady then appears to the Americas. And I, I can't, I, I don't remember the exact stats, so I'll be very conservative here. But for every Catholic that left the church in Europe during the Protestant Reformation, it was over 100 entered the church in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like this, this great providential care that God had for the church that the, while the faith was um, being bled out in Europe, the faith was arising in, in the Americas. Uh, and Our Lady, as a sign of... Um, this new birth in in uh, Mexico uh, that's symbolized by her being pregnant, right? And so that pregnancy, you know, waiting Christ's birth, Advent, Christmas, there it is. So um, a very fitting uh, fitting image, um, fitting um, feast day for uh, for Advent. Saint Lucy, I think um, this this idea of uh, light and eyes, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're awaiting. We're awaiting the the light of Christ, right? And so we're celebrating uh, the Christmas uh, right after the winter solstice, right? When the world is darkened and then a great light arises. But these this light can only be seen with the proper eyes, right? And so like the, the image of, of Lucy being blinded, yet perhaps she sees uh, or, and perceives things in a better way than we do with our natural sight. I think there's a lot there as well. And then lastly, John of the Cross. Um, I think him and uh, John the Baptist share a lot in common uh, of, of uh, preparing this desert in order to uh, partake in the mystery of Christ. Um, that, that way of nothingness, the way of nada, you could speak more to this as you're a Carmelite. So. Um, but, you know, from my... Um, Light dabbling <laughs> in turn of the cross. Um, I think he's a he's a great model for uh, uh, us who are called to prepare during Advent, uh, uh, stripping yourself of all desires, making straight the way of the Lord, um, so that you can rejoice at His coming. So, yeah i I think I read an article. Uh, I read an article. I think it was from Word on Fire, maybe or First Things, connecting Saint John of the Cross to this mystery of, of Christmas and why mm-hmm. he's a good Advent, Adventite. Is that right? Adventite, yeah. yeah is it, that, I yeah. think Adventine. It is now. So. Um, <laughs> uh, a good Advent saint or a good Christmas saint uh, because of this idea of, he said, light and darkness and, and hiddenness as well, that Christ comes in in not in glory but in hiddenness, and it's only those who have the eyes of faith that will see it, which actually 
we'll get into in the gospel, the same idea of Christ in your midst, but you do not perceive him. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, St. John of the Cross really hits on that. Yeah, it's, if, if you're a Carmelite, then today is a solemnity. It's uh, St. John of the Cross is, and St. Teresa of Avila and Our Lady of Mount Carmel are all celebrated mm-hmm. as solemnities. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've been reading St. John of the Cross for, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 years or so. Someone gave me a copy of, a friend of mine gave me a copy of Ascent of Mount Carmel before I left for seminary. Mm-hmm. And that was the first work I read of him. I, w- I wouldn't recommend that as the first work. I'd recommend okay. the spiritual canticle <laughs> as the first work. But be as it may, I, I read it, and it was one of the, one of those moments in your life where you read something or you hear something, and you immediately think, "This is the way. Like this <laughs> is how things should be. This mm-hmm. is how this is how it should be done." And that's how I felt about Saint John of the Cross. Like immediately, I was convinced that Carmelite spirituality, and especially the, the spirituality of Saint John of the Cross was the spirituality that I wanted, yeah. that I wanted to follow. Yeah. So in the words of St. Teresa of Avila, I think from that time to today, St. John of the Cross has been kind of a, a father of my soul, father to my soul in, in his writings. You know, I, I, I think that people sometimes view the saints as, or view people like St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, the mystics, as very disconnected from life, especially in the way of Nada, being, being very aloof. But when you read St. John of the Cross, you find that he has a, like, a very penetrating psychology in a way. Mm-hmm. He has a very keen sense of human nature. When you, when you read, when he talks about a detachment or attachment, like you can see yourself in these writings or you can see other people that you know that are like this. And he talks about people being attached not just to material goods, but to different images, right? They, they, they just, they can only pray with this image in front of them or this is my spot in chapel and it's mine and I, I can only pray in this spot or I, I refuse to pray my rosary unless I have this one particular rosary. It's like there are people like that. Hmm. Like there are people that yeah. like, they're, they're so attached to particulars that they almost give up everything for that. Or he talks about, you know, he goes through the, the seven capital sins but makes them spiritual, you know, a spiritual gluttony or something like that, or spiritual avarice. And it's true. It's like there are people that are resentful or envious of the spiritual progress of other people. Mm-hmm. Or there are people that will not pray unless they receive some sort of delight from it. It's like, that's true. Like, that's that's a really, really good insight. I, I, again, I think at times he talks about the highest of things, like participation in God, like that the vocation or the call of every soul is to become one with God and then all the way down to why is it that some people will not pray the rosary unless they have a particular rosary? Mm. You know, it's like the whole span of everything. So I, I think mystics actually, rather than being detached from human nature or aloof from human from humanity, they are actually very in touch with the yeah. depths of humanity. Right. I, um, I, I picked up on his psychology when I was uh, praying the office of readings for today. Um, and his second reading, I, f- I forgot what work that excerpt was taken from. But John of the Cross talks about in order to delight in God's riches, you have to go through suffering. Mm-hmm. It's not an option. Uh, and it's just there's a lot of wisdom there. I, I think uh, I've heard it said before that uh, if you want to become wise, there's only two ways. You either grow old or you suffer. <laughs> yeah. um, and this is what John of the Cross was expressing in, in this um, second reading for the Office of Readings, that if you want to ascend, you have to descend, right? And so, you know, we've talked about Dante's psychology there. Uh, there is no other way. And I guess that's where he gets his, uh, uh, his name is John of the Cross, like his, his deep perception into the wisdom of the cross, uh, is uh, that's what defined him. And yeah, so. yeah. If you if you read the the proper readings for the day for him, or the readings that are assigned to him, it's from Corinthians where he talks about where Saint Paul talks about the wisdom of the cross. That it's you know foolishness <clears throat> to um, something black to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, yeah. and 
that's that's that is right true even in his religious name that's where i think he found his his source of wisdom was in in the cross yeah that's very true and that's that is that's really everything i mean if that's the center of our faith is is the the cross and the mystery of the cross and so the more that you can enter into that and uh, how however dark and uh painful that is the more you're going to grow in wisdom that is the path to wisdom and just like John the Baptist, the, the the reading of the day of um, what would this be? The Thursday of the second uh, so, uh, week of Advent, mm-hmm. uh, our Lord talks about how none uh, those of those born of women, none are greater than John the Baptist. And our Lord says something that's very um, uh, perplexing on the face of it. He says, "The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent bear it away." Uh, and I think what he's, uh, what our Lord is referring to in relation to John the Baptist is that in order to prepare the way for the Lord, you have to do violence to your own passions. Uh, it's, it's, you have to undergo the way of suffering, which is seen, can be seen as violent. Mm-hmm. You know, John the Baptist, I don't think anybody would um, character, characterize him as a, a gentle, timid man, right? Uh, he, he was a figure who was violent right he he ate locusts right he said things that were unpopular that led to his own um death uh that 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 sense of violence done unto yourself to undergo suffering um that is the way that is the path uh and then at the end of it though that's when you can rejoice so john the baptist john of the cross lots of good johns yes right yeah well i mentioned it maybe i'll maybe i'll come up the gospel this time because there's a more explicit connection between John the Baptist and Elijah this week. Mm-hmm. Last week there wasn't so much, uh, but the, there's a medieval tradition of Carmelites that that interprets John the Baptist as a Carmelite because he was in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah is the the father of the Carmelites, and kind of analogously, like if you were in the spirit of someone else, you were kind of grafted on. So they take John the Baptist as kind of a Maybe an unconscious Carmelite or unknowingly Carmelite. They claim the, him as yeah. their own. Nice. Um, which I didn't know. A seminarian told me that when I was in seminary, and I didn't believe him. And then I picked <laughs> up a copy of this book, the the kind of the early writings of the Carmelites, and that was their interpretation of him. Yeah. And I was like, wow, never mind. I guess you're right. <laughs> so we can uh, Very good. We, we can hop into the readings. Uh, the first reading is from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So... We have in Isaiah, we hear it kind of broken up into two parts, but the first part here is Isaiah announcing a new prophet, that there will, there will be a prophet who comes and announces a year of favor from the Lord, a day of vindication, but that the Lord is anointed. He says, this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So, I think you might be tempted to say that what, since he's saying me, is that uh, uh, Isaiah is, is thinking that, or Isaiah is speaking of himself. Mm-hmm. But in the greater context of, of Isaiah, I think he's speaking for this new messenger, this new prophet, okay. who will have the Spirit of the Lord upon him, who will anoint him to bring glad tidings to the poor, liberty to captives, release to prisoners. So... There will be a theme throughout our readings, I think, that of kind of a, a reversal of fortunes or like a, to use a, a scary phrase, a new world order, ah. you know, that, that God is coming in this year of favor, which is, it kind of recalls the Old Testament idea of a year of jubilee mm-hmm. where, you know, there was a forgiveness extended to all the Israelites Debts would be forgiven. People would be restored to their land. Israelite slaves would be freed. So there, that, that's a, a, re, a reversal of fortune. Mm-hmm. So, and then, we're, like I said, we're, we'll see that later. Or that that will be a theme. So pin that theme of kind of a, a reversal of fortune or that this messenger, God's divine messenger, is announcing glad tidings, which is also announcing this new world order. Yeah. I think 
One of the themes that stuck out to me uh, in this first reading is uh, the sense of justice that will be established. Uh, the, the the word justice is used a couple of times, especially in the second part where uh, Isaiah is proclaiming, I rejoice heartily in the Lord, and my God is the joy of my soul, who has clothed me with a robe of salvation and wrapped me in a mantle of justice. So we have this sense of joy, um, which is the theme. the theme of the third Sunday yeah. of Advent, Gaudete, uh, rejoice. But it seems like this joy is a fruit of the justice that must be established prior to uh, re- rejoicing. Mm-hmm. Um, justice, strictly speaking, is giving to another what is due to them, right? Uh, but when we talk about it uh, uh, as it relates to God, justice is giving, rendering unto God what is due to him. That would be piety, I guess, strictly speaking. Uh, yeah, I think it falls under the virtue of religion, but I don't know. Right, and so the difference is- under justice, you would have piety, and then under like within piety is the virtue of religion, uh, rendering unto God what is due to Him. Once that is established, then you can rejoice heartily in the Lord. It's you know, joy is not something that. It's, it's not an emotion. It's, it's not a, uh, a consolation that comes and goes. But it's a deep inner disposition that you can have despite the chaos that's going around the world and, and, and in your life. If your soul is right with God and you are rendering what is due to God, then you will have this inner sense of joy, right? Peace and joy. Um. So I think that that's what um, this theme of justice in this first um, reading is getting at, that once, once you establish uh, justice in yourself and, you know, in, insofar as you can, um, outside of yourself in the community, the, greater, the bigger um, community at large, um, then you can experience um, the fruit of justice, which is joy. You know, we're, we're going to um, sing the glory to um, the Gloria again. Uh, come Christmas. Right now, it's taken away from us um, uh, during this Advent season. But when we re- when we rejoice uh, in the Gloria, we 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 are essentially claiming that if we give glo- God glory, then peace will be established to people on Earth. Right? I remember. I think it was um, Bishop Barron who made this um, observation years ago, saying that uh, the Gloria is kind of like a formula. Mm-hmm. Give glory to God in the highest, then peace will reign among the people. Uh, mm. And that's essentially, I think, what the first reading is getting at. Um, if you are wrapped in a mantle of justice, if you give God glory, what is due to him, then peace will reign. So, And the way that justice is ultimately restored is through Christ. right? Like By our own power, we cannot set the cosmos right. Uh, and so it's at the coming of Christ um, he who will perform the greatest act of justice on the cross, that at last justice will reign. So, yeah, no, that that's um that's a good point about that humans can't bring about this perfect justice. That is part of the necessity of the incarnation of God becoming man is to restore a justice that humans could not have done. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> That's uh, that connection also between joy and justice is interesting, you know. As Saint Thomas Aquinas says, the the joy of the saints is the perfect. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna sanitize it a bit, not to scandalize too many oh, people. Yes, yeah. I know <laughs> the joy it. of the saints is is God's perfect judgment and justice being executed. Yeah. So th- there is yeah there is a sense in which when when justice is done and, and God. Uh, when justice is done, which here, which is to heal the brokenhearted and to free the captives, release prisoners, that you can take joy in that, that, that mm-hmm. God's perfect justice is being, is being executed. Mm-hmm. But right now, humans engage in imperfect justice. So until God you know, accomplishes this, this act, it's hard for, for humans to rejoice. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's hard to sing to Gloria until that, until that happens. Right. You also have in the the second half here a 
a common nuptial image here, right? You said that God has clothed me, clothed me, clothed me in a robe of salvation and wrapped me in a mantle of justice, like a bridegroom adorned with a diadem, like a bride bedecked with her jewels. Mm-hmm. So you have this. Uh, I'm trying to find it very quickly, but I think it's um in the was it the preface for Christmas where the things of heaven are wed to the things of earth is the phrase that is used. Yeah, isn't that also a um, phrase used in the Exalted in uh, at the Easter Vigil? vigil? It, I feel uh, I think that's another phrase, but something that hits on a very similar idea. Yeah. I believe I'm trying to find it. Could probably Google it faster, but um, but I think there I think that it's the idea of marriage of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. I think is still what is trying to be communicated here, right? And throughout the Psalms, we see that as symbolized by Jerusalem, right? The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as being the bride, uh, and and God being the the bridegroom. And it's that union between God and Jerusalem and the people. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so all I'm seeing here for the preface for the nativity is you have that we may recognize in him God made visible, so we may be caught, we may be caught up through him in love of things invisible. Mm-hmm. Then we have, for on the feast of this all-filled mystery, through invisible, though invisible in his divine nature, he appeared visibly in ours. And begotten before all ages, begun to exist in time, so that rising up in himself, all that was cast down. Okay. Through him, a holy exchange that, extor- that restores our life has shown forth today in splendor. No. So the things of heaven, I think it might be the exalted instead. Yeah. Things. Of, it doesn't matter. Well, but. <laughs> I mean, but the idea there, I think, is perfectly relatable to the person of Christ, that the things of heaven and the things of earth are most perfectly uni- unified in Christ. Yeah. Right? It's divine and, hu- and... Yeah, right. The divine and the human, which are, they're not at war with each other, but they're at peace, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, the joining of, of heaven and earth, um, as the, the, the different prefaces talk about, they're all getting at this idea of something that was invisible and something that was eternal mm-hmm. is made visible. This is very uh, – Bonaventure talks a lot about this. As, yeah, as, by the way, I just found it. Yeah. Is, is it the is exalted? It, yeah, this is oh, the exalted. Yeah. Oh, truly blessed night when things of heaven are wed to those of earth yes. and, divine, and divine to the human. Yes. But as my um, Christology professor said, all the mysteries of Christ are united. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no. I, he was born to die to rise. Yeah, right? yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's you, yeah, you, you could say that line of the exalted just as much on Christmas. On Christmas, yeah, exactly. Could. Yeah, on Easter, that's true. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, where where was I? You said John. You were just talking about a. Oh, uh, Saint Bonaventure. Saint Bonaventure, that was it. Yeah, yeah Saint Bonaventure. You know, kind of talks about Christ as the the center of all things, the center of the universe, the, the one who unites the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal. So in in this marriage, you have, I guess, Christ as the perfect bridegroom of, of everything, really, mm-hmm. of all creation. So right. Christ is the center of the cosmos, but he also comes all the way down to be the center of your soul. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's drawing all things together in the incarnation. Yeah. So, in this, he's the bride. In the in Isaiah, you could say he is the bridegroom, and the soul, the earth, is his bride that he is now kind of endowing with the jewels of of virtue and of grace. Right. And he's wrapping his bride in salvation. That's why he's come. Yeah. Um, all that, all the the parables leading up to Christmas, you know, in in ordinary time. Talked about this, like the bridegroom, the, the bridegroom imagery, the, the banquet right. imagery, that he's coming to give his bride salvation, mm-hmm. coming to give the earth salvation. Right. You know, it's fascinating in, in the Old Testament when you talk, when, when you read about God being the, this imagery of him as the bridegroom and Israel as a bride, um, and the tension that's always present between the two. 
um, you know, uh, the, the the people of Israel being talked about as is as an adulterous woman, right, the harlot, um, and yet God always has um, mercy and patience with Israel to come back to Him. But that's at last reconciled in the person of Christ, where before there was always this. It almost seemed like it was like Israel versus the versus God, and and it was never a a, a harmony that existed with God. Like as soon as as soon as they were prospering and there seemed to be like a minute of peace, they would fall again and, and they would stray from uh, their vocation as the bride. But in Christ, at last, it can be a, a, a peaceful and joyous relationship where all things are set right. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's true. Uh, you know, I guess he's kind of perfectly united himself to the church, mm-hmm. which though, you know, perhaps in its human function, imperfect, but in her divine foundation, perfect. So he, yeah, the, right, he exactly. always has a, a faithful people yeah. in the church. That's true. Um, any other thoughts? Uh, just one last one is that as Christ as man becomes a representative of perfect humanity, which is why that relationship between God and the people can be um, reconciled. Uh, it's through Christ. It's like he acts as a representative on man's behalf to say, I am uh, I am the one that is now worthy to to be wed to. Mm-hmm. Um, to have like he- heaven and earth now can be wed perfectly because he represents man. But yeah, okay. That's that's all I have. Um <clears throat> so you wanna move to the psalm? Sure. The responsorial psalm is interesting because it is not a psalm at all. That's right. <laughs> the, so the responsorial psalm is not responsorial psalm. It's Mary's the, Magnificat, right? Yeah, the yeah. refrain is from Isaiah, mm-hmm. the, from right from what we just read, Isaiah 61. Uh, the refrain is, my soul rejoices in my God. So we just heard that. And then the content of the not responsorial psalm, or the responsorial not psalm, yeah. <laughs> is part of Mary's Magnificat. Yeah. It's not the whole thing, I don't think. But, but it's but it's it's part of it. You, yes. you get the idea. Yeah. So when I was reading over this, I thought for sure the the Magnificat is in part inspired by what we just read from Isaiah. But it appears as though Luke had no he didn't have Isaiah in mind. I I know he had this. He had Hannah's song from Second Samuel. Okay. Or Samuel, I believe. Yeah, it, it's in Samuel, but it's where uh, Hannah. It's it's sorry. It's First Samuel, second chapter. But where, where Hannah, who is also barren, uh, bears a son and, and gives thanks mm-hmm. for uh, the the mighty deeds of God. So she sings a very similar hymn as the Magnificat, where God kind of you know has looked on the lowliness of Hannah. And how she's lowered herself that God made raise her up. Interesting. Uh, as well as some other psalm imagery. But either way, the Magnificat continues the theme that I pinned in the first reading, which the idea of of uh, a new order or that you know this kind of reversal of fortune, a not a a Nietzschean. Revaluation of all values, you know, okay, yeah. uh, you know okay. that it's it is true as as Pope Benedict pointed out, it is true Christianity does revaluate the values of of antiquity. Yeah. So in this, you can have a downward and upward movement if you read the Magnificat like this. So yeah. the downward movement is that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones, mm-hmm. or you should say, yeah, she, um, yeah, he's he's sent the rich away empty. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones. But then the upward movement is he has filled the hungry with good things. And he's lifted up the lowly. And he has lifted up the lowly. Right. And he's looked upon his lowly servant. But Mary goes from, I I think what Mary's trying to do is what God has done for her, and then she becomes a symbol of what God has done for all people. Right. Because she says here, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon his lowly servant, that's her, from this day all generations will call me blessed. 
then next refrain, he has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. So mm-hmm. for all of those who participate in the spirit of the Magnificat, in the spirit of, of, of lowliness to be raised up, will also be blessed. Right. This is, uh, the Magnificat is such a great example of how Christianity is really a religion of paradoxes, uh, you know, and relating it to Advent too, um, you know, this upwards and downwards movement you know, made me think of um, that uh, prophecy that mountains will be leveled and valleys shall be filled, right? right. From and last making, week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And making straight the way of the Lord. Uh, you know, the, 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 the entire universe is like an imbalance after the fall. And it's Christ who will level all things. Right. But going back to this idea of paradox, um, you you have the rich and the great being humbled and emptied, and it's the those who are hungry that are will be full, um, you know. And and going uh, through salvation history, it's the lowly young virgin who crushes the head of the serpent. Uh, you know, it's Christ who is not born as uh, with the appearance of a, as a, of a king, but who is born in a manger. Um, yeah. it's that, that's, that's wrought throughout all of salvation history, this idea of paradoxes. And the Magnificat perfectly uh, captures that. So, I think you also have, continuing the idea, if we can go with some symbolism here, the symbolism of the feminine still going on. So you had in the second or in the first reading, you talked about the bride bedecked with her jewels. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people take this Isaiah and apply it to Mary, that Mary is is the bride of God who's right. been bedecked with jewels. This is that is again the jewels as symbols of virtue and grace. Mm-hmm. That Mary's spirit and soul is to be the model for all believers, that all believers are to have their souls proclaim the greatness of God right. and their, their spirit rejoice in, in God, that their savior, as well as have the spirit of loneliness and things like that. Like I said, she is a, a, a model or she personifies all believers. Mm. That she's not, she's not, this is not a hymn just for what God has done for her, but again, for what all people for, for every generation, right, who take on kind of this, this spirit of of Marian re- receptivity, receptivity, receptivity. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I believe we talked about this before, but this idea that you know, before God, we're all feminine, right? Our souls receive grace, right? We don't take it for ourselves. Mary is a uh, the the greatest example of that, right? She she was not the one that was praying to be the mother of God. She received the angel Gabriel's message, and she, she said, "You know, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me." Yeah, uh, it's that. It's that passive, passive in the sense that, like, uh, we receive, not in the sense that you know we just wait around apathetically doing nothing, um, but that we receive, and then it's the reception of whatever comes to us, um, whatever vocation we we have in a particular, um, that we respond well. All right from Mary, it was saying, "Be it done unto me. Um, I will receive um, the, the Son of God into, into myself, uh, so that He may be born. Um, whatever might come, and, and we see this also exemplified in the life of Christ. Of course, um, you know, He received the cross right uh, to Himself. Uh, this is why we call it the Passion of the Christ. The, the Passion, as in passive, right, is something done unto the subject. Um, that, that's what." Um, that, that's what the spiritual life is all about, is receiving what comes to you, receiving the cross um, so that you can respond worthily uh, and well uh, to move forward um, from, 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 that, from that point of view, from that perspective, from that point. Um, yeah, so Mary is that um, perfect image of, of who we're all called to be. Yeah. Re- yeah. Re- receptivity. So. Yeah. I, she has a bit of a... St. John of the Cross as well, as St. John would say, that kind of lower yourself that God may raise you on high. Yeah, right, exactly. So Mary has this that she is lowly, but God has raised her up. Yeah. But that can only be done 
by first humility. By, yeah, exactly. By, uh, by lowering oneself. Yeah. And how different that was than, you know, compared to, you know, Lucifer, um, when he said, I will not serve, right? Uh, he was not receiving the news of um, uh, God being born as a man. Well, <laughs> um, Adam and Eve, too, they grasped what was not offered to them. Uh, really, I think you can boil down all of man's problems to just a sense of grasping <laughs> instead yeah. of receiving. Yeah. So. Well, that's that's why Mary is the you know kind of symbolically or, or uh, prophetically foretold that she will crush the head of Satan is right. that it's lowliness and humility that will end up undoing pride. Yeah, exactly. That right. paradox again. So. All right. So second reading. Wanna... Yes. Let's move on. Um, to Thessalonians. Yeah. The what the first letter, first Thessalonians. So here again we have the theme of rejoice, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, ceasing in all circumstances. So here we get a famous line about test everything and retain what is good. That this is in many ways very um, emblematic of early Christianity or Christianity's meeting with West, Western thought and, and philosophy. Right. You know, that Christianity takes to itself all that is good and tests it, yeah. And if it's viable, either incorporates it, yep, or baptizes it and then incorporates it, or if it's not good, rejects it. Yep, and that's uh, I think a great example of someone who does that well is Tom Aquinas, right? He he puts every thinker through the crucible <laughs> in a sense. Uh, you know, he's testing testing everything. He tests. The thoughts of Muslim philosophers, Jewish philosophers, pagan philosophers retains what is good, and then kind of just cuts away the fat, you know, throwing away and refraining from every kind of evil, as Paul would say. Um, and that's what we're all called to do: test everything. I like that. We also have here the distinction of spirit, soul, and body. We had kind of a distinction oh, yes. in the Magnificat yeah, of spirit and soul. Yeah. So what's the difference between spirit and soul? That's – go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you assume I have an answer? No. <laughs> verily, verily, I say unto thee, spirit, soul, and body. Yeah. So I've heard it also say like mind – Body, soul, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I, I don't know how serious um, St. Paul had in mind when he was making these distinctions, but, you know, you have, I think, the body is the body. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's the, the material, the the bios, your biology. Then you have the soul, which is, you know, as we know, the form of the body, mm-hmm. you know, or, or it's the, it's what makes you human. It's what makes you right. uh, have a distinct nature. But then you have the spirit, which I think the spirit is classically understood as the the higher faculties of the soul, right? So those the intellect, yeah, the exactly will. the will. Yeah. So it's when he says, "May God make you, may the God of peace make you perfectly holy, and may He and may entirely preserve your spirit, soul, and body." So it's almost this body, the lower part of you, yeah, the soul, the, your nature, but then also the spirit, the higher part of you. So there's this this idea, I think, that Christ comes to redeem all three aspects yeah. of right. man. Right. And that's why he says, like, may you be preserved entirely. There's no aspect of your being that is not um, blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a interior conversion. Yeah. Um, and this is why it's so important to understand that when we talk about this conversion in Christ, it's, it is entire. Meaning that every part of us, it's not just that we begrudgingly do what we ought to do, um, but that everything is erect in us. Um, you know, talking about like this is this is like front and center in Dante's thought um, that it's our desires that need to be formed within us, not that we just look virtuous, but that we are virtuous. Um, you know, and virtue encompasses. Um, the, the whole person. It's not, this is what distinguishes virtue from um, continency. 
where like the continent man, this is going back to Aristotle, the continent man would look like he's virtuous on the outside, but interiorly he struggles to desire that mm-hmm. which is good. Um, but the truly virtuous man is free in, in so far that he is entirely made upright, where what he does is good and virtuous exteriorly, but interiorly he's also delighting in that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. No, so. I think it's all these, all these aspects because St. Paul could have said body and soul, yeah, you got to cover everything, but I think he's kind of making he wants a, to be thorough. A, yeah, a yeah, thorough point, which yep. is God will make you holy, spirit, soul, and body. Yeah, that they said now, all faculties will be absolutely going made back right. to the um, beginning of this reading. Uh, do you? So he he has some like these are um, it almost sounds hyperbolic when he's uh, instructing his listeners or his, you know, the Thessalonians, uh, to rejoice always and pray without ceasing. You know, I've, I've heard this idea of praying without ceasing as like, oh, well, what he means is that like your life is an offering to God. Um, and so if your life is a prayer, then you're praying constantly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in some sense, I think, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out. It's just like, eh, yeah. you know, my, yeah, my life is a prayer and so... Whatever I do, uh, I'm essentially praying. I mean, if that was the case, then I think like you wouldn't have to ever make a holy hour or you know pray a rosary or whatever, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a sense that you know prayer is not just living your life. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about this this idea of praying without ceasing? Yeah, I guess I have two thoughts. So <laughs> it is true that your life could be a prayer, but maybe. You, but that, that means, though, that you could offer bad prayer. Yeah, <laughs> so right. like right, a bad right. life yeah. is bad prayer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, maybe in some sense you always are. But I would say when it comes to kind of daily living in prayer, on one hand, there is, like God is found in your obligations and duties. Yes. And your occupations. Absolutely, yeah. And there is a way to kind of sanctify the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Going along with that, on the other hand, or another point is – kind of this this idea of the presence of God. You know, John of the Cross would say, take God everywhere with you. Mm-hmm. Wherever you go, walk yeah. with walk with Christ. Walk as though Christ is with you. So I think in that way it could be, but I, I think it needs I think the idea of your life is a prayer needs a lot of qualification. Yes. Because it's true yeah. it, it could be true, but only if you're actually practicing the presence of God. If you're actually saying that in these daily occupations, whatever it is, however lofty or mundane they are, that you pray during them, yeah. But just living unconsciously, and it's like no, no like that's yeah. I think I think that's that's how I would answer as well. Is that if your life is going to be your prayer, and you're going to take this uh, commission by Saint Paul to pray without ceasing, and you have to be intentional about it, right? Um, and so there's a there's a sense of intentionality with the way that you live. I think that's where you can make your life a good prayer. And so, you know, we, we, we've we've gotten into the habits of making morning offerings, you know. Um, that's a, a very pious thing to do. That's something recommended and that you, you know, you offer up all your prayers and joys and sufferings of the day. Um, and that's a reminder that as you go throughout your day, everything that you do can be offered up to God. Yeah. Um, but it's when you forget his presence, you know, like um, a contra John of the Cross. Uh, when you forget the presence of God around you is when you fall into sin, right? That you neglect your life and you just start putting yourself above others, above above God. You're seeking out like immediate pleasures. That's when you step away from your life as being an offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, and then the the... What preceded this um, commission to pray without ceasing is rejoice always. Um, this is another one too that you know I I want to say it's it's hyperbolic, but at the same time there is a sense of you know, we're Easter people, right? <laughs> we we live in the hope of Christ coming back again and that He has redeemed all things. Does that mean that we can never experience like sadness, or do we never experience like? Depression um, is that not of God? 
Um, or is there a place of, um, you know, of solemnity or being serious um, that can be divorced from joy? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But... Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, the other day driving to Mass, Sarah and I, we, <laughs> we, we kept on saying the refrain from, this is like a overly pious moment, um, the... The canticle on Sundays, the like sun and moon bless the Lord, oh, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so every time we like we had like slow drivers, it was like slow drivers bless the Lord, <laughs> red lights bless the Lord, and it actually in some ways disarmed like the frustration. Now I'm not saying you have to do that, yeah, but I, I think that there there is a sense in which you can experience the, the disappointments in life, and you can experience the hardships in life, but what is the will of God for you? as St. Paul says in this writing, is to rejoice anyway. Mm-hmm. That yeah. even even in these trials, you rejoice because it's it's God's will. Yeah. Um, I, I think, again, that would, that would be a very St. John of the Cross way is of, of, of thinking of these things, is everything is from the hand of God. If he is giving you this, it is for your sanctification. Right. So rejoice. Right. It's It's seeing that bigger picture. I think, you know, because sometimes, uh, you know, I, I I like to romanticize about Christianity as being like this this very serious lifestyle that you recognize how fallen the world is, and you know, as Tolkien once said, you know, we're fighting the long defeat with only glimpses of final victory, um, and it's almost like this, you know, it's something attractive about this, like the idea of like a brooding philosopher who's like, you know, yes, we're all going to die, life is suffering, but we await. Um, we await um, victory in the end, and I. But I think um, to be brooding and, and to be darkened because life is suffering is to forget that you no, know, like you know, God wishes for you to partake in the joy of the resurrection even now. Um, even now, there's joy to be had, even in the midst of suffering, because as we we've said before, that like suffering is not something that we just have to bear, um, and then you know, throw it away once we, we reach our end goal. But it's actually ingredient to joy, right? It's ingredient. In, the cross is necessary for the resurrection. Um, and and that realization, I think, is what can be described as joy, is that even in the midst of trials, in the midst of even frustrations as like red lights and bad drivers, um, you know, all of that is providential and it will be yeah. turned for the good. And we yeah. can rejoice in that. So. I, I think it, it sounds cliché. And it sounds, and it's certainly easier said than done to rejoice in in all circumstances and give thanks, but that is what you're called to. Yeah, it, it's it is what what the Christianity aspires to is is that even in your pain you give thanks yeah. that God has in a sense given you the <laughs> given you the privilege to suffer. Yeah. Um, and as, as he says, like Paul says it clearly, but this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. There it is. That's the will of God. I love his um his next exhortation to do not quench the spirit. Don't do anything that might um uh, you know uh, snuff out the light of 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 the spirit within you. Um. You know, I, I think that that's such a like that's essentially what we're trying to do during this Advent season is like the more that you're able to purify and um, detach yourself from material delights, uh, the more inflamed your soul will be yeah. um, with the Spirit. So, Yeah, no, I, I think to suffer well is is a hard thing and, and it's, it's not, again, easier said than done. But when I think when you don't suffer well, you quench the spirit. Mm-hmm. You lose that that moment of of purifying grace. Yeah, exactly. That if you are able to embrace your suffering and give thanks for it, then this then the spirit is alive. Yeah, you keep that flame alive. But yep. I think through resentment and through anger and through frustration that that you have to suffer. And I and I wish I didn't have to. It's like well then you quench the spirit of God. You yeah. quench the spirit of the, the will of God for you. Right. Yeah, very any, good. any other thoughts? No. I think uh, we can move on to the gospel if you're ready. Um, yeah. Okay. 
So we get, the gospel comes from the first chapter of John. And shortly after the prologue of John, um, yeah. we get this image of John the Baptist yet again. And I love how John the Evangelist is setting up um, John the Baptist for his reader. He says that he, he, there's a couple of times where John the Evangelist is saying that John the Baptist is not the Christ. He is not yeah. the light. Yeah. Um, so he says, a man named John was sent by God. He came for testimony to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. Later on, just a few lines later, uh, when the Levites ask who John the Baptist is, uh, he says he admitted and did not deny it, but admitted I am not the Christ. So I think what John the Evangelist uh, is showing is that it seems like people were expecting John the Baptist to be the the the, uh, the Christ, to be Jesus. Uh, and what's what I think is going on there is that John the Baptist was so, so, uh, well, as our Lord says, there's none greater, none born of woman greater than John the Baptist. He was so, his soul was so in line with his own sense of destiny and vocation that the Spirit of Christ shone through him almost right, and, and this is almost kind of what we're called to be uh, in our individual lives is that. Uh, hopefully, people will mistake us for Christ, <laughs> in a sense, right? Um, and and so, like, there's almost like this, like, um, lack of distinction between a person who's so united to the will of God and Christ Himself. Um, yeah, right. And and that's the first thing that struck me um, in introducing this character of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, is that John had to say twice um, that he is not the Christ, and that's how close he is to to Christ himself. Yeah, it, it's very emphatic, you know, even in the Greek that he that he he is not the Christ. He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted I am not the Christ. Yeah. So it's he was not the light, but yeah, he testified to the light. Yeah. He's very firm that I and this is supposed to be a sign of humility. Like right. I I am not because perhaps somebody might take all these people coming to him asking if there's the Christ as an opportunity to perhaps think maybe I am the Christ. But yeah. because St. John is so endowed with grace, he knows that he's not. Mm-hmm. He, he knows that there's one greater than, than he who's coming. But I, I, I like the imagery that you're setting up there in the beginning that he's testifying to the light, but that he, that he is not the light, that he is more of a, a reflection or yeah. like a window through which I think you've used imagery of stained glass before that light comes through the stained glass, mm-hmm. but it's, and we kind of marvel at that, but it's still, it's not the light yeah. itself. It's, it's the light by which we see or something, but it's not, not the God himself. Yeah. Um, one translation of the Magnificat or, you know, my, that, that, that's the Latin for, um, the beginning of of Mary's prayer from the psalm. But Magnificat has, you can see it right there in the English word, to magnify. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think St. John is is going back to that Magnificat, yeah. which is my soul magnifies this light. I'm testifying to the light. Right. Yeah. But I can only reflect mm-hmm. the light that's coming. I don't generate the light myself. Yeah, exactly. I'm just a magnification of the of the true light that is coming. Right. And, and you're so, right that everybody's called to testify yeah, to that. Exactly. And 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 that's what I think all people when they embrace embrace their vocations and live in the light and are following the path set for them by God. There's an attractiveness there. They become little lights, right? Like mm-hmm. little Christs, if you want to say. And, but the, but the proper response to that always is to emphatically say, as John did, I am not the Christ. 
I'm just a voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. So he's pointing to God always. Um, I think that any saint, uh, their lives are going to be attractive mm-hmm. to one extent or another, right? Uh, and many saints have, uh, because of their holiness, have gained followers, um, but it's not followers for them. They are not the end for which you know they set out to do whatever they're called to do. They're always pointing to Christ. Um, so just as John the Baptist, you know, oh, said, I am not the Christ, I'm just pointing to him. So too, we're all, we're, we're called to, to follow in that lifestyle as well. Um, so you, going through this, they, the Levites come to, the, come to him and say, who are you? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not the Christ, which is interesting because they don't ask him that, actually. They, <laughs> right. just, they just say, who are you? But yeah. he admits, I am not the Christ. So I guess St. John the Baptist has this idea that they yeah. they are on yeah. the lookout for the Christ. Right. And he but it's also because he is as we'll find out later in the gospel, he's baptizing. So this is a prophetic or right. a an eschatological image that the the Messiah would come in and do these actions. So they're saying, Well, if you're baptizing, then you must be the Christ. But then they ask him, Are you Elijah? Which is an interesting question, because I I guess I always assumed in this question that are you Elijah? They were talking about like quasi incarnation or reincarnation. Okay. But this idea that he is Elijah come back. Yeah. And I thought his answer to that was no, I'm not. But I guess there's some, at least medieval speculation, that they were at the Levites were asking, Are you Elijah reincarnated? But he was, spe- but John was speaking in the spirit and saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not in the the like the spirit of Elijah." Interesting. But it's weird right. because because he in is. The, in the, well, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. he is. And then even even Christ says so. Says like he is in the spirit of yes. Elijah. So I guess there's kind of this idea that Saint John is maybe. So humble that he doesn't he rejects that's what I was getting I, all the all these titles yes. and that I am I am simply later I am the voice perhaps he was that's afraid it. that he would gain the following that was not due to him yeah um and the Levites like they're seeking the Messiah um and they're like it's like as as they're coming to him I can almost imagine like they're ex- like they're on edge saying like if you're not the Messiah can we follow you as the prophet. And he's like, calm down, right? Like, right. there's this sense of like, I am just a voice crying out in the desert. I'm not even worthy to untie, you know, the straps of his sandals. Like, don't put your faith in me, yeah. essentially. And it's interesting because later on in John's gospel, Christ does affirm that no, like John is, for those who can, you know, yeah, have yeah. faith to see it, John is Elijah. Exactly. Um, and so there is a sense of like John being cautious about what kind of following he's gaining. Yeah, because they ask him, are you the Christ? They ask him twice. So the Pharisees um, come as well. Oh, but right, so, yeah. so it's the, the, the Levites, Levites and, and the Pharisees, Pharisees ask yeah. him, are you the Christ? He says, no. Are you Elijah? Which you might think he could answer yes, mm-hmm. but says no. He says, are you the prophet? So in our English translations, the prophet is capitalized P. Mm-hmm. So it's who is the prophet? And... As far as I can tell, the prophet is the prophet that Moses foretold. In, be- in, in, in Deuteronomy, he says that there will be a prophet like greater than myself yes. or like myself. Well, is that Christ himself? Yes. Okay. So yeah, right. basically it's like, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? Right, right. <laughs> but it, it, it is interesting that he, that he knows, that uh, St. John knows that, Christ is coming. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as though he's even, yeah, I think our, our interpretation of humility is correct because if he knows that Elijah will come before the Christ, yeah, he would say that, yeah, I am Elijah. Right. Because I'm I'm pointing the way to Christ. Right. Yeah, so that makes sense. But even even that, he's saying, I am not even Elijah. Yeah. And I'm I'm just pointing the way. I am just the voice crying out in the wilderness. That's all I am. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's supposed to be a sign of great humility. Yeah. That's I think that makes the most sense. And which is why Christ later needs to, you know, 
tell people like this figure of uh, who John is. He is he he lifts John the Baptist up mm-hmm. essentially, saying that none again none is greater um, born of woman than John the Baptist. For those who have faith, he is Elijah. Um, but I you know, John's radical humility uh, is kind of his his whole character, right? He he's given up every pleasure on earth. You know, mm-hmm. he lives in the wilderness, wearing camel skin, eating locusts. Um, it seems like he just wants to fade in the background entirely, um, and so yeah, that's there's there's a beauty to that. Um, yeah. So when they when they losing track of the people here, losing uh, uh, when the Levites ask him, "Who are you?" He says, "I'm I'm just the voice." In the desert, make way, make straight the path of the Lord. So I guess they leave. And then the Pharisees come and ask the same thing. But they ask him, if you are not Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, then why do you baptize? Mm-hmm. So there is an idea that, again, there's an eschatological baptism, a purification yeah. that's going to come with the end times, that, the, that only the Messiah can do. So it's a legitimate question that if you're claiming not to be any of these people who will baptize, then why are you baptizing? And this is where he qualifies his baptism. Yeah. It says, I, bat- I baptize you with water, but there is one among you who you do not recognize, who is coming after me, who will baptize you. Well, he doesn't say yeah, it actually, here. Actually, he doesn't. He doesn't he say doesn't it here. He doesn't say it here. But the idea is that like Christ will baptize with fire, right? Yeah. And so. Yeah, Holy Spirit. Yes, exactly. And yeah. And, I think this is um, just as John's baptism is um, insufficient compared to the baptism with which Christ will bring. Um, that reflects his character. And so John is essentially preparing the way of the Lord by baptizing with water, washing away the sins of the people so that Christ can get, then fill the people with grace, right? Um, and so... Again, like his baptism is a reflection of who he is. He is simply preparing the people um, by making sure that their, you know, their 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 souls are clean, so that they can receive then the goodness which God wants to bestow through Christ's baptism. Yeah. So yeah, his is a symbolic gesture of repentance. Repentance. Yeah, exactly. And there's there's also an idea that. You have all these people who are coming from all over who are being baptized. So in a way, the Jordan River is soaking in the sins of the people. Mm -hmm. And then Christ will go down into the waters and sort of take on the sin of the people. Right. He'll sanctify the waters, but it's it's a symbolic gesture of him putting on the sin in that moment. Exactly. And he's taking the people of the uh, Judean countryside are a representation of the sins of the world that he's going to take on himself. Right. So he also, John also says that there is one among you, one among you whom you do not recognize. So this is a common motif in John's gospel. I think this idea of kind of hiddenness in faith hmm. and seeing and believing. This is also where we get how St. Thomas, he talks about, or St. Thomas scene where he says, unless I see the marks right. on his hands. And, and this whole idea of like darkness and light. Yes. And, yeah. Right. So if you, yeah, if we had the expanded or the full version of the intro to- Director's cut. Yeah. <laughs> if we had the director's cut of the gospel of John, the beginning part, then yeah, we, we, we would have seen the interplay of light and darkness. Mm-hmm. So right here, what he's trying to say is that there is one among you you do not recognize because you're in darkness. Yeah. Because right. you do, you you are not illumined by faith, right? You cannot see him. He, he's he's hidden among you, but if you have the eyes to see, you would recognize him. Mm-hmm. And so John is the one who has the eyes to see, right? Right, exactly. And that's why he can. That's why point he has to point. The, yeah, yeah, that's why he has to um, prepare the way, because yeah, you can imagine him as kind of like the beacon of light, by which we're all in darkness and we can see the light and then therefore head towards it. So yeah. We also have the mention of the untying of the sandals and the Jordan again. That was also 
mentioned in last week's gospel of not being worthy. So again, all these examples of humility, and then he's coming down to this one, which is a perhaps slave activity of untying the sandals of your master. He he mm-hmm. he is not even a slave. Yeah, he's he's almost nothing. Right. And again, you have the connection to Saint John of the Cross here, of like extreme humility, that to be, to be nothing in God's sight. Right. To be so hidden that God doesn't even notice you. Right. And you see, because when they ask, you know, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? You know, they don't even recognize that Christ and the prophet are one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even know the extent of who the Messiah will be. They get glimpses of these prophecies throughout, you know, the Old Testament. Um, but in the person of Christ, it's someone that's even beyond their imagination. But John was able to recognize him, like, you know, we, we heard in um, Luke's gospel, how even... Um, at Mary's visitation to her cousin Elizabeth, that the child in her in Elizabeth's womb left for joy, right? And so there was even a recognition of who Christ was um, beyond human sight. It was almost like this like soul to soul connection. Um, and so this is why you know he can say that you don't even recognize who this man is who is coming um, just by you know you even thinking that I'm the one, mm-hmm. um, shows how blind you are to the whole situation. Um, and all he can say is that I am not even worthy to touch his shoes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they're, they're on the lookout for someone very different. The Messiah, yeah. like I said, Elijah, which and is, you, it's it, no, no fault to their own though, because, um, the, the person of Christ is, doesn't just fulfill our imaginations. It goes beyond our imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no, it is true so. that there is no, in their minds, there would be no prophecy that would say that the Messiah will be God and man. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. born of a virgin, all these different things <clears throat> down across. That's that's not really in their minds. Yeah. So you're right. There are they are on the lookout for the Messiah because clearly they come to to John the Baptist thinking that he is. But you're right. He rebukes him and says, "If you knew." The Messiah, you wouldn't be asking me. Like, yeah. You wouldn't think I'm the Messiah. You wouldn't. You would recognize him. But as it is, since you, and of innocence, don't have faith yet, you, know, you don't. You don't recognize him. You do not see. You do not see. Yeah. Any final thoughts? No, I think. Uh, I think we got it. <laughs> good. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good place to stop. Um, once again, if you have any questions or stuff you would like us to talk about on the podcast, please email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next